Basically, what I want to do is I'm going to eat into your break a little bit. I'm sorry, because uh, we want to get as much done as we can. Um, I'm going to say everything I do is kind of going to be building on the stuff that I've done before and looking at it from different angles. And so just to do a little recap on what I've, I've kind of been talking about in the last couple of sessions, uh, I talked about awake as a vigil. Uh, literally, it used to be you sat at a dead body and you stayed there overnight in the presence of the dead, watching over the body. Uh, and how awake now is kind of that, but symbolically. You have awake and the body is generally not there in the bar. Sometimes it is crazily in some, some places, but the body is not literally there. But the wake is all about being in the presence of the dead remembering, telling stories, laughing and crying, drinking together, remembering together, so that as you remember, as you mourn, something of that dead person remains alive in you in a positive way and moves forward. And I talked about two rumors that kind of bring us here potentially. And Icon, or I keep saying Icon because this is kind of a, a, a continuation of Icon. At wake is not about, as, as Adam said, giving the answer, but it's about keeping these rumors alive. And the two rumors I mentioned is one, the rumor that we should stay with the dead. The things that have died within us, the idols, because this is all about what wake is about, those idols of certainty and satisfaction that have let us down in various sacred and secular ways. That we, the disappointments and the sufferings and the anxieties, the difficulties, that we faced in our lives, there's something about a rumor that we have to sit with the dead, that if we do not mourn, if we do not work through that stuff, those things will cling to us in unhealthy ways. And then the second rumor, which we want to keep alive, is the rumor that if we do that work of mourning, there is life on the other side. There is something beautiful, don't know what it is, but something if we sit with, with those dead idols, something that we can move forward in our lives with. And as I said, the, the thing that we are awake for is we are awake for the religious God, the idols, the idols of our lives that have promised us a certainty and satisfaction, but have delivered uh, nothing but uncertainty, anxiety, and struggle. So that's that. And then in the second session, which some of you were at, I talked a little bit about how a lot of our suffering does not relate to the loss of, say, a God who's going to fix everything, whatever that God is, or fame, or money, or that man, or that woman, you know, that relationship, whatever it is. It's not the loss of that that causes so much pain in our lives. It's the fact that we hold on to it so tightly. So we lose it. Maybe, for example, you're out of a relationship. You've lost the relationship in actuality, but you're holding on to it as a fantasy. So uh, holding on to it means that you're struggling because you're imagining that oh, if only you could get it, if only you could have it, then it would be wonderful. And we use that example of uh, you know, someone who breaks up uh, with a person, they know they're not great. The relationship was terrible. They weren't talking. They were arguing. They didn't want to go home at night. But as soon as they break up, suddenly there's this drive to return to it. In the very withdrawal of the mundane relationship, it becomes sacred. It becomes metaphysical. It becomes transcendent. And I, I talked about that idea of a child's toy. 
in the very act of taking it away, it can start to seem a really magical thing that you want, even if you know intellectually that it isn't. And I quoted uh, René Girard, who said that, imagine a man who is told that there is a treasure under a rock, and so the man goes into a field of rocks and is lifting up all of the rocks to find the treasure. Eventually, says Gerard, that man will seek out a rock that he cannot lift. And the idea is this, is you keep on getting disappointed by not finding the treasure. And then you start to worry that perhaps there isn't a treasure that will make you whole, that will fix everything. And so what you do is you seek out a rock that is so heavy you can't lift it so that you can keep the fantasy alive that maybe the treasure is beneath it. We would rather think that we don't have the sacred object but it's out there than maybe facing the possibility that there is nothing that makes us whole and complete. But that actually in facing that, something else can arise. So I, I want to kind of draw, draw out what I mean by that a little more. And I want to use a, a story by C.S. Lewis. Interestingly, C.S. Lewis wrote this short story, first thing he ever wrote. Uh, I think it was called The Man Born Blind. And it's also called The Last Story because he returned to it at the end of his life and he rewrote it, he edited it. And it wasn't actually published until about 20 years after his death. And it's kind of fascinating because it doesn't sound like a C.S. Lewis story, right? It sounds more like something Sartre would write or something. It's very dark. And it's about a man who is born blind. And he goes through an operation. And at the other side of the operation, he can see. And his family are ecstatic. And his wife is there beside him when he finally is able to kind of see everything that's around him. But instead of being happy, he starts to feel this dissatisfaction because all his life, all his life, he has been wanting to see light. Everyone talks about this thing called light. And this is what he has been waiting to see. And whenever the bandages are taken off, he's looking around and he asks his wife, okay, where's the light? And his wife doesn't really understand the question. They go home and he asks again, you know, where's the light? Everyone's talking about the light. And she says, well, you know, there it is. There it is. And he's like, is the, the light bulb? Is that the light? Well, look, look outside. Look at the sun. That's the light. Oh, that big ball of flaming rock. Is that the light? She's going, well, no, that's not the light, but the light's emanating from it. You know, the light there, there, you know, this, this is the light. But still he's thinking to himself, no, that, these are different objects. That's a screen, that's a bulb, that's a big burning rock. I want to see light. And he starts to get this suspicion that everybody's been conning him, that everyone's talking about this thing, uh, but nobody's actually seen it. And he starts to think, well, maybe like, this is a rumor, that there are some people in some other country who have seen the light, and they've got the light, and that these people haven't. Or maybe it just doesn't exist at all. And his wife, of course, is getting more and more frustrated because she just doesn't understand the question at all. It's like, what are you talking about? And eventually, he decides when he's kind of well enough and he's got his bearings to go out for a walk on his own, just to walk uh, uh, through this forest and over this ravine that he knows and to try to find the light. And as he's walking, eventually he walks up this hill and he sees a painter on the edge of this precipice. And the painter is painting, it's, very, it's, it's dawn, and it's misty, and there are these shards of light coming through the mist in the morning. 
And he walks up to the painter, he says, what are you doing? And the painter looks at him ecstatically and says, I'm painting light. It's so beautiful. You can see it's almost like you can touch it, like you could walk into it. Look at it. It's incredible. And the man born blind becomes really interested. He says, like, you know, I've been looking for the light. Nobody seems to understand where the light is or what it is. And the painter says, yeah, no, most people ignore it. But look, look, you can see it. You can look at it. You can touch it. You can taste it. And so the man steps to the edge of the precipice and then walks into the mist, falling off the precipice and dying on the ground. Right? So that's how it ends. This guy, this bloody corpse on the ground of the quarry. And it's fascinating because in a way what Lewis is exploring is, uh, you know, I suppose on one side you've got the crude materialist who would be the wife who's saying, I don't even understand this question. What are you looking at? There's just what is. You know, there's nothing transcendent, nothing beyond what you can see or whatever. So on one side, you've got that. And then on the other side, you've got this occultic insight. Someone who's saying, I can see the light, I can taste it, I can express it, I can put it into words or into a painting. And his main attack is actually the person who says they can articulate this, this dissatisfaction. Uh, it's kind of like a psychic death. This person is, 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 has the certainty that they can capture the very essence of reality. And then, of course, you have the man born blind. And the man born blind is someone who is dissatisfied. Seeking this light, nothing is satisfying him. He's always moving forward to try to find it, to try to find some way to satisfy this sense of lack in his being. And C.S. Lewis was probably talking to one of his friends who's an anthroposophist. He was kind of critiquing that kind of view. But um, I think it captures a desire that we all have. Uh, on one side, either trying to uh, get rid of any anxiety in our lives and trying to shut down any desire from, for some transcendent thing that will somehow satisfy us. Or on the other, to run into it, to grasp it, to somehow find it. And of course, Lewis is here saying that if you ever find a thing that you think will make you complete, it's even worse, right? It is the horror of, you know, fulfilling your dreams and realizing that your dreams do not fulfill you. The horror of getting them. And this man has not found a way to somehow enjoy the dissatisfaction that he's experiencing. And this notion of not getting something and making you desire it, so this desire there could be something out there, you see it all around. I think, you know, I talked about the child with the toy. You take it away and it starts to become magical. But um, something I'm interested in when I went to America is Americans made this technology, and you probably know this, that helps young people have sex. And I find this interesting in a very permissive society uh, where basically you can have sex as much as you want or whatever, that it was America that created this technology. And it's very simple. It's a ring that you put on your finger called a purity ring. And by what it does, it says you're not going to have sex, which fantastically makes sex incredibly appealing. So in a world where there's no prohibition and you can do whatever you want, you actually have to reintroduce a prohibition in order to make it fun again, to make it sexy again. If you, if you don't want your kids to have sex, talk about it all the time. Ask them to describe what happens whenever they went out with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Draw me a diagram. Let's see. Come on. Let's, then they'll never have sex, right? <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to help them have sex, you make it a prohibition. 
right? You, you, and this is kind of like my talks. People say, Pete, you'd be a good speaker if only you prepared more, didn't waffle a lot, stayed on point, and didn't forget where you were sometimes. And um, I'm going to, no, if I did those things, right, then at least now you have the illusion that it could be a good talk. If I did those things, right? It's a terrible talk, but hey, if only Pete did this, it would be wonderful. If I did those things, you'd have a terrible talk and no illusion that it could be good. So what I do is I purposefully get lost every now and again, don't know what I'm doing, and throw analogies in that don't really quite work. Um, it's kind of like the, the uh, a guy in a submarine eating a cheese sandwich, you know? So anyway, the, um, the idea is... Uh, this, this prohibition is not getting can generate desire. And Todd was talking about this, interestingly, with, with capitalism. It's funny how, uh, weirdly, we think that uh, capitalism is very natural, whether you like it or not. One of the arguments you hear a lot is, well, it, it fits with our natural desires, right? So whether it's good or bad, that's what we're all going to be like. Very, very natural. And you've got to try to find a way to work with it. But in a way, is it natural? It's, it seems very unnatural whenever you look at other animals. Other animals seem to, if they, uh, they get uh, you know, uh, a nest, they're not thinking of two other nests, one by the beach and you know, a nice one like in, a, in a sunny climate. Or when they get enough food, it doesn't seem like that they want to eat more and more and more than they need. Like I do if I get good Chinese food or somewhere, I want to eat more than I physically can. You know? Or they don't seem to want to... Uh, 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 if they get shelter, kind of like uh, get, make it bigger, bigger shelter and more fancy. It's like there is a weird thing where once the instinct is satisfied, it seems to stop. So an instinct, you could say an instinct has, about, has three different elements. One is it's very discreet. So whenever you look at instincts, you go, okay, there's an instinct for mating or for food or for shelter, right? And when they get satisfied, the, the animal seems content. Uh, two, um, oh yeah, so one is they're discrete things, very discreet. Second, yeah, when you get them, you're satisfied. And thirdly, they're in the service of life, right? This, the instincts are in the service of helping that animal survive uh, in their environment. But human beings, we talk about humans having instincts, but Freud talked about human beings having drive, which is kind of like a perverted instinct. It's an instinct that is weirdly twisted. And so three things you can say about a drive, which are different from instinct, is a drive is not for discrete things, sex, food, uh, shelter. You, it, drive can attach to anything. We can, we, and even when it attaches to things like food, it attaches to food in this excessive kind of way. I'll come down in a second. But we can have a drive for stamp collecting. We can have a drive for collecting cars, for, for, for clothes, for sex, for like any, anything. We can seem to get some sort of connection that seems as strong as an instinct. As strong as that instinct for mating an animal, we have this strong drive that, has, that can connect with all manner of things. Secondly, they don't seem to be able to be satisfied. These drives, the more we get closer to fulfilling them, the more we uh, push ourselves into them, the more we strive for. So the increase of money is a good example. You think one million will make me happy. And you get a million, you go, well, well 10 million and 100 million. Where do you stop? I know people who have made that kind of money and more. I spent some time in America with some people who were very wealthy, and it was amazing how the more wealth that they had, the more you got into the increase of wealth. 
getting caught up in it. Gambling's a good example. A gambler, we think gamblers are addicted to winning, right? But winning and gambling is not that interesting. If you're doing slot machines, if you win all the time, you get bored very quickly, right? So one of the insights in psychoanalysis is often we're not, we're not addicted to winning, we're addicted to the losing. We're addicted to the losing because the more you lose, the more you think the win is going to be fantastic and satisfying. So the more you lose, the more you can retain the fantasy of winning, right? Um, I had a relationship once, and uh, I was talking to an analyst friend, and I said, I was, it's a heroin relationship. I'm just addicted to the highs. Uh, and they said, um, maybe you're addicted to the lows. I said, oh, never thought about it like that. That in, in all of the prohibitions and the obstacles that were embedded in the relationship, and there were multitudes, uh, all of those kept this fantasy alive of if only we could get over all of those obstacles, then it would be wonderful. And it got to the point where we realized that we weren't in love with each other so much as we were in love with the obstacles that prevented us from being in love with each other. That the external obstacles that were preventing us from being together, suddenly you realized, oh, maybe those external obstacles are just uh, a reflection of some sort of internal uh, desire not to be together to keep this fantasy alive, finding a rock so heavy that we cannot lift it, uh, but not enjoying this, this struggle. So um, the, the drive, it's, it can attach to anything. It's insatiable. It's, it's something that we want to not get what, what we're driving to get. And thirdly, it's not really in the service of life. It causes so many problems in our lives. It causes us to self-destruct and to hurt other people and to hurt ourselves. And we see this kind of fantasy object all the time. Like if you break up with someone, I broke up with someone and I was like imagining that she was out partying, having a great time, doing all this fantastic stuff. And I was like in the house with a tinfoil hat on, collecting urine and bottles, you know. Um, and it's this, this weird fantasy of the other having all of this satisfaction and completeness and wholeness that I don't have. This lack is so painful. In theology, there's a name for it, which I love, original sin, original lack, right? So the conservatives know this. Liberals don't like it so much. They talk about original blessing. But original sin is the idea that we have this lack that is, comes first. And then we fantasize a desire to fill it. I want to talk about that in the next session, not now. Um, but this, this weird lack that we are not confident and we're not satisfied uh, until we can somehow get rid of it. In religion, in, as I say, like in LA, most religious place in the world, said us before, but it's like every corner has someone promising wholeness and completeness. If only you do the right yoga moves or uh, take the right drugs or have the right money or go to the right party. The tyranny of happiness is absolutely terrifying. Um, this, this desire to find a thing that will fix you. And I think that is the core of religion. I think that's religion just by other means. The religious God, the deus ex machina, as Bonhoeffer called it, is the God that promises the wholeness, the satisfaction, the completeness, the escape from this lack that we feel in our lives. But the problem with heaven is that uh, it's hellish. The problem with heaven is that it's hellish. One of the ideas that Freud had um, was that, first of all, he, he named two things. He named the pleasure principle. The pleasure principle uh, is the idea that 
there's certain things that we want. I want to climb trees as a kid. I want to eat chocolate all day. I want to win all the games that I play. And the pleasure principle is just this principle of kind of utilitarian. I want certain things in life. And then he named the reality principle. And the reality principle is what gets in the way of the pleasure principle. I want to climb all the trees I can, but my body won't let me. I want to eat chocolate all day, but my parents won't let me. I want to win all the games I play, but my friends won't let me. So the reality principle seems like it gets in the way. And what we do is we fantasize that if only we could get rid of the reality principle, then life would be wonderful, right? Pure heaven without hell. But one of the things that Freud saw was that actually it's the reality principle that allows us to get any pleasure. If you took away the reality principle, you wouldn't be left with pleasure. It would be hellish. And uh, the horror film I love from the 1970s about this psychotic guy who's torturing his child in his vast building, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> is, uh, is, uh, is about this because Willy Wonka is this like devil character who um, is basically in the Wonka Vader at the end. Uh, briefly, briefly, you see how he is the devil. He says to Charlie, uh, don't forget what happens to the boy who got everything he ever wanted, right? And he, he says it in a very serious tone. And then Charlie says, what happened? And then this big evil grin, this evil grin, terrifying grin, says, he lived happily ever after. Oh, God, how horrible is that? So, um, the, uh, the, the kind of series or the show that expresses how horrible that is, is um, the 1969 episode of The Twilight Zone called A Nice Place to Visit. Uh, about this guy, Rocky Valentine, who's a low-life criminal, gets shot by the police, dies, and then wakes up. And he wakes up, and there's a guy, Pip, in a white suit, standing over him. This big, cheery guy says, hello. And uh, Rocky Valentine gets his gun out. Everything looks the same. He says, who are you? He says, I'm Pip. He says, give me your money. <laughs> Pip laughs. says, here, you can have it. Here's my wallet, but I'll give you more than that. And Pip says, okay. He says, let me take you to this house. So they go to this mansion, and they go in. Rocky Valentine's like, oh my goodness, like I've hit the mother load here. Uh, they go in, and Pip says, yeah, you can have whatever you want. In fact, this house is yours. Rocky Valentine's like, what? He's starting to realize that there's something weird is happening. And uh, then Pip says, I hear you like gambling. Let's go to the casino. So they go to the casino, and Rocky Valentine wins every game that he plays, every single game. He comes by, this is amazing, this is incredible. He starts to go, my goodness, I didn't think I would get here in the afterlife. And then uh, Pip says, okay, I'll leave you to it. If ever there's a problem, give me a call. And of course, you know where this is going. Six months later, Rocky Valentine picks up the phone, and there's Pip. And Pip appears, and Rocky Valentine says, listen, this is a nightmare. He says, I, 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 I win every time at the casino. And Pip says, well, what percentage would you like to lose? And he's like, no, that's not the point. <laughs> and he says, and it's this is a nightmare. He says, I shouldn't even be in heaven. And Pip, of course, turns around and says to him, whatever made you think you were in heaven? This is hell. And then he starts to laugh, and it says in the Twilight Zone thing, you know, Rocky Valentine is condemned to live happily ever after, right? Um, and it's the problem with uh, Robert Nozick wrote this book where he talks about this thought experiment of a pleasure machine. And he, he imagines a virtual reality machine that you can enter and you'll get everything you want. And not only that, you won't even know you're in the machine. Just like the, uh, the guy in the Matrix who wants to be reinserted into the Matrix and to forget what happens and to eat steak and to be a rock star or an actor, you know. 
And Nozak says, well, would you do it? And Nozak is actually trying to make a different point. He's trying to go, is there something more important than pleasure? But what he doesn't realize is actually the pleasure machine would be horrific. Because the pleasure principle without the reality principle would utterly, utterly destroy us. It would be, it would be horrible. So here's the thing. In society, we have religions of the pleasure principle, and we have religions of the reality principle. You know, we have religions, sacred and secular, that promise that you can have what you want, you can be who you want to be. You can, you can uh, get rid of that struggle and that lack. And there are religions that say, no, you have to give up that obsessive desire, uh, somehow put it to rest, somehow get rid of it. And what I'm interested in is this notion of a religion of the absurd. Uh, and Tertullian once said this. He said, I believe in uh, the Son of God uh, because it is absurd. And I believe in the crucifixion of Christ because it is absurd. And it's a fascinating phrase because you think that nobody agrees with them, basically. Either you reject Christianity because it's absurd, or you accept it because it's not absurd. But the idea of accepting it because it's absurd is absurd. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Why would you embrace something that is utterly absurd? But to understand absurdity, the best person to go to is probably Camus. Camus' work is largely to do with the absurd. And Camus' definition of the absurd is basically this. Uh, an individual who wants meaning in life encounters a universe that seems indifferent to giving you that meaning. And the experience of being in that antagonism is the absurd. So absurdity isn't about square triangles or anything like that. It's about experiencing living in an antagonism between desiring meaning and not getting it, being in a universe that seems to resist it, which is very similar to the pleasure principle and the reality principle. We want to be the center of the universe. We want certain meaning, certain things, and we confront a universe that seems to subvert that or make it difficult. And what's interesting to me is the crucifixion, the cross, is a type of absurdist symbol. It's kind of a proto-punk kind of thing. Because punk is absurdity in music, in a way. It is kind of like not so much a new musical form as a, as a rupture in music. Uh, or you think of Dadaism in art, which is a type of absurdist movement in art, you could say. Uh, you could even say uh, Occupy was an absurdist political movement, not so much giving a new political agenda, but but putting a spoke in the wheels of what presently existed. But the, the cross, for me, is a type of absurdist symbol because it's the idea of the guarantor of meaning, God, dying a meaningless death. Right? It's this crunching together of the highest and the lowest, the, the kind of the, the, the meaningful God of, of everything who creates meaning, dying in this utterly meaningless, dirty, naked way. So every time you wear a cross, it's almost like this, this embrace of this absurdist moment, living in that absurdist kind of paradoxical or dialectic moment. And this, this is what interests me about parotheology, is what the, the attempt to say that, that this experience of lack and struggle, that, the, that salvation or conversion is the subtraction of our desire, our libidinal investment in some lost object that will make us whole and complete. 
This is why the real, the truth of this event, and I'll, I'll let you know what it is now. Um, there's a guy called Gabriel Marcel, right? He was a French existentialist. And he would write this existentialist work. And then this priest friend supposedly said to him, you know, listen, Gabriel, you're one of us. You're already, you're already writing about Catholicism. You don't even have to make any change to your thinking. We just want to baptize your work. Just admit what you already are. And Gabriel Marcel bent the knee and became Catholic, Catholic existentialist. So in terms of what Todd was saying yesterday, I'm just inviting Todd to bend the knee to radical theology, sir. What you're describing, you're already one of us. Somebody's played just as I am. It's just as I am. I don't know if Todd's in the room. You want to come forward, bend the knee, you know, because Todd, is that Todd in the back? Do you feel it? Do you feel a warmth in your spirit? You do, you do. That's good. That's what I, I, I just want you to come to the front, sir. No. Um, but you know, in Todd's work, so much of his work seems to be how do we disinvest libidinally from this frenetic pursuit of more and more and more, that the more we give to it, the more we sacrifice to it. And it's a funny thing, he mentioned this in his talk the other day, and I, I know it because I know some hedge fund people, that weirdly you think it's the most selfish thing to give yourself to investment of capital and to more and more. And it's the most natural thing. I said, it's natural. It's just you want more and more. No, it's not natural. If you were selfish, you'd stop. If you were selfish, you'd stop when you'd made 1 million, 10 million, 100 million. You'd go off and you'd enjoy it, right? One of the best footballers in the world is George Best. And he once said, uh, what did he say? He said, I spent um, most of my money because he was a very uh, womanizer and all of that. He said, I spent most of my money on women, drugs, and alcohol, and, he said, and I squandered the rest, right? So is it, is it, you would just go out and have a good time, but some of these people just, like, they give themselves so sacrificially, as Todd was saying, so sacrificially to this, that it's to the detriment of their health. It's to the detriment of their family. And you actually talk to these people and go, yeah, I, I really should stop. My doctor says I'm going to die at 40 if I don't stop this. Like you've already made 50 million. You know what? Like you can buy pretty much anything you want. Move to Belfast, you can buy the whole place, right? But this, this, this um, investment to more and more and more, how do we uh, detach libido? How do we create collectives of subtraction? That's what I meant when I said uh, that I, I, Wake is about trying to encourage. Uh, kind of subversive, countercultural, insurrectionary communities of subtraction of our libidinal investment in an ontologically irretrievable lost object. That's all you have to remember. Write that down. <laughs> I think you could even tweet that, right? That's, the, that's what we're trying to do. Is that is somehow it's being in the world but not of it. You're, we're in this world, but we are not libidinally invested in that way. And the more people who are unplugged from that, the more communities where we're unplugged from that, where we're able to enjoy. Because it's a perverse form of selflessness. That's the thing. Like capitalism in that sense of you're trying to get more and more and more, you're not selfish, you're not self-interested. Because if you were self-interested, you'd stop. You've given yourself over sacrificially to something that is very destructive to you. This pursuit of the thing that will make you whole and complete that's always moving just beyond, always something you can't quite grasp. Um, so I know I need to finish up soon. What time is it? Oh, yeah, I've got a few more minutes. Um, one thing that, that Camus said, 
in this is he used uh, the figure of the conservative and the figure of the revolutionary. And the figure of the conservative is often someone who looks back to a utopia, some previous time where everything was good, whether it was in your childhood, in the last marriage, or the golden age of the uh, 1950s or whatever, or in some sort of uh, prehistory time. The conservative is looking backwards to some sort of utopia. And the revolutionary is looking forwards to some sort of utopia. They're looking forward to something that will fix everything. And of course, the problem is you're unhappy if you don't get it. And you're unhappy if you do, or you get killed if you do. You know, if the revolutionary gets their, their uh, utopia, they're usually the first to get killed by it, right? So in this environment, the conservative and the revolutionary, they're unhappy if they don't get their utopic vision. And if they ever get it, they realize that it's actually a type of fiction. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And then Camus has this third figure, which is the figure of the rebel. And the rebel is slightly different from the revolutionary in the sense that the rebel, uh, they are dissatisfied as well in their life, but they can enjoy that dissatisfaction. They are driven to moving forward, to challenging things, to fighting for things, but they are enjoying it. Now, the truth is, in a way, we, we all enjoy our lack of enjoyment. It's like a kid at Christmas waiting for a present. They might be having a temper tantrum you know, about the present, but there's, there's some weird enjoyment in this temper tantrum. There's something they're getting out of it, but they're not able to enjoy their enjoyment, right? They're not able to get anything. There's something they're getting out of it, but it's not something that is actually something they're able to enjoy. The rebel is the one who is able to enjoy their dissatisfaction. They're able to mobilize it. They're able to weaponize it without... Uh, being dissatisfied until they get the thing. And the example I like to use is in sports, it's like football, because I never understood football, because nobody ever wins, right? People win games, and people win championships, but no, nobody ever wins the football. And I guess that's what they're playing for. They're playing for the football or something like that. But it just goes on forever. And then after the championship, there's another one, or another Super Bowl, or another whatever. And I said to a friend of mine, why... Do you get into this? There's no end to it. I was the ultimate capitalist here. I was the ultimate one going like, just have a, have a super duper bowl, right? <laughs> and then the super duper bowl is the one where one team wins, you give them the football, then we end up, we just, that's no more, that's it, that game's done. And then we invent another one. And then we play that, and you know, in 30 or 40 years, we find the ultimate winner of the, the new game uh, that we've invented, right? And he's like, no, the point is that it's you're with the team in the struggle. You enjoy the wins and the losses. You enjoy the story, the being with that team through thick and thin. And in fact, if your team was winning all the time, it would be a nightmare, right? It would be awful. So there's a, there's a football, the Championship League, I think, at the moment, if you're in the football. And uh, Liverpool, I think, are on the verge of winning. Is that right, Micah, or somebody? Nobody knows you're all Americans, but there's some. Uh, but the point is, my friends here in the Liverpool are all super excited because Liverpool haven't won for so long. They're excited about this, but the win is kind of because of all the losses, and they're enjoying the ongoing struggle. So this, I think, is a good analogy of the type of collectives that I would love to see us somehow create. And of course, it's, it, you can put it in a nutshell and say, it's great to be in a society where you're free to pursue what will make you happy. 
But we also need communities where we are freed from the pursuit of what will make us happy, right? Where we are free to, to freed from that frenetic tyranny of happiness, free to be able to mourn and to make space for those darker aspects of ourselves. It's very difficult. Um, I, somebody said, I can't remember who said it, I tried to look it up this morning, um, but somebody talked about Scooby-Doo once, I heard them talk about Scooby-Doo, because Scooby-Doo, I think it was 1969 it came out, and it was really a show about uh, exposing how superstition is, uh, you know, is rubbish, right? So basically, behind superstitious notions, there's actually very normal material reasons for things. So you'll always have a monster or a goblin or some demon, but actually it's Farmer Brown from down the road, right? They rip off the mask at the end, and it's a natural explanation. So this detective company goes into some derelict town, some old uh, beach uh, community, they find they're terrorized by some supernatural entity, and at the end of every show, it's discovered, no, there's a very natural thing. However, there's a second mask that is not taken off when you watch this show. The first mask uh, basically is a critique of supernaturalism uh, in relation to uh, materialism, right? The first mask is there are natural causes going on in the world. And once we understand these natural causes, we don't have to believe that uh, it's raining because of some the tears of Thor or whatever, right? But there's another weird type of supernaturalism at work, and it is the supernatural attachment that Farmer Jones has with the treasure, right? This obsessive desire for this stupid treasure that will make, make Father jo Farmer Jones do all of this elaborate stuff, who's, who's really a miser, because most of the time if you watch Scooby-Doo, the criminal is some old man who's lonely, lives in a shack, life is in poverty, life is terrible, and he's just obsessed about this, this treasure, right? So what's happening there? As Simone Weil once said, what, is a, what does a miser lose when he loses his treasure, right? And she's probably thinking, or she is thinking about uh, Aesop's fable, about the miser who has treasure buried under a tree. And every week he goes and counts the treasure, never spends it, just counts the treasure, reburies it, goes back home. And then one day, uh, a thief sees this, steals the treasure, the miser goes up on the Sunday, as always, in his religious ritual, un, uh, you know, digs up the treasure to count it, and there's nothing there. And he starts to, to scream, he starts to cry. Some neighbors come around to him and say, what's wrong? He says, somebody stole my treasure. One of the neighbors says, why do you bury it in the garden? Do you ever spend it or use it? And the miser says, no. And so the neighbor picks up some rocks, throws it in the hole, and says, well, count those. It'll do you as much good, right? Now, and it's a brilliant question, and Lacan brings this up. He says, okay, so what, what is it that the miser loses when he loses his money? Of course he loses something material, but not really, because he's not using the money, right? He's not, so he's not, he's, not, he's not going to spend it. It's just there. So he's not he does lose something material, but that's not why he's crying. Why is he screaming? Why is he crying? Well, because he loses the fetish object that prevents him from experiencing the horror of the life that he already lives. Right? While he's counting the treasure, somehow he is able to not really realize that his life's a bit crap. 
right? That, that his living abode is terrible, that, that he's estranged from his family, that things aren't good. As long as he has this treasure, he somehow is, not, is able to avoid emotionally confronting uh, the life that he's living. And so what he loses is this fetish object that he knows is not magical, but treats it as if it is. And you see that in our own lives, as often we can have all sorts of rituals and things that somehow prevent us from looking at our lives and making a change. Interestingly, Marx talked about this whenever, you know, we all know the religion is the opiate of the people, but in the, in the wider quote, it says, he says, like, it's the opiate of the people, the soul of a soulless nation, the heart of a heartless condition. And then he says, religion is the imaginary flowers and the chains of our oppression. We must get rid of the flowers, not so that we see the chains and despair, but so that we can see the chains and break them and pick living flowers. And so what he's basically saying is, he's saying, like, religion in its worst form is like a painkiller that helps us deal with life. It helps us get through life. But actually, what sometimes we need to do is get rid, of, get rid of the imaginary flowers so that we can actually do something about life, make some real changes, and live well. So all of this to say, um, what I'm interested in is how do, we, how do we disinvest from this illusion, this notion of the lost object, something that, that will satisfy and fix us? and find a type of community that draws us into doubts, complexity, ambiguity, the enjoyment of struggle. How do we mobilize that, that, that struggle and make it into something positive and good? And that's what I want to look at uh, in some of the other sessions. Now, we've got a few minutes for some questions. Does anybody have any questions about that? Want to ask anything? Throw out a thought. There's also a roving bike. Actually, stick up your hand if you have a question and the mic will come to you. Oh, here's one. Take your time there, Brandon. Yeah, no rush. i got to play maze around this. <laughs> uh, just curious, um, what you're calling uh, the uh, reality principle, is that related at all to uh, the prohibition that you talked about earlier? Yeah, yeah, I think it is, and it's... Uh, you know, with a different terminology that I think um, connects with this in some way, and you'll have heard me talk about this, is this psychoanalytic, the ideas of the object of desire and the object cause of desire. So an object of desire might be you want a house, uh, but the object cause of desire is actually you enjoy looking for the house, you enjoy going through websites, you enjoy walking through houses, you enjoy that, and actually... It's the, that's the very thing that gets in the way. You're saving up your money. You're looking at all these websites. That's the kind of thing that gets in the way, but it's actually what generates the desire. So if you actually get the object of desire, you lose the object cause of desire, and you no longer desire what you desire. Right? So you want to get married. You want to settle down, say that's your desire. But actually, when you get it, you lose the, the obstacles. And therefore, you get what you desire. The one thing you lose is the ability to desire what you desire, which is, uh, you know, a difficulty. So you've got, like, in one sense, you've got, as I said, the sadness of not getting what you want. And on the other, you've got the sadness of getting what you want. Is that, is that help? Or no? Or do you want to ask anything else? So is that related to the prohibition then? Uh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's why I love the Jewish tradition. I talked about this in the 101 course, but, but if you know my work, you know I talk about how the Jewish story starts with a type of eatable story. These Adam and Eve want to get the apple that's got a prohibition. The prohibition generates a excessive desire. They break the prohibition, eat the apple, and it's a disaster. Um, so the challenge is, and something that Todd brought up, and he said it in such a lovely, distinct way, he said, how do you move from the struggle for fulfillment to fulfillment in the struggle? Um, and, th and the reason why I connect this with Christianity, and I, I want to do it in future sessions, but just to mention it briefly, is if the eatable structure is there at the very beginning of the Bible, so basically it articulates a type of struggle where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Then the... Temple of Jerusalem is a reenactment of the Garden of Eden. You've got the temple, you've got the sacred Holy of Holies, you've got a curtain, the prohibition, you've got the court of Gentiles. And behind the curtain is the sacred object. But in the crucifixion, there is this moment where Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The temple curtain rips. You see inside the Holy of Holies, and there's nothing there. That is the loss of the lost object. For me, that is the realization that there's nothing that will make you whole and complete. So the weird thing about conversion for me in Christianity is it is weirdly the moment in which you realize that, that, that the sacred is not an object that you love. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. This is the case. And this is why in The Divine Magician, I take up um, something that Shizek talked about, about Christianity as a magic trick. Because you've heard me talk about this, but oh, hocus pocus uh, probably comes from a hawk -esque corpus where the, the, the magicians are taking the piss out of the, the priests doing you know, the, the, the Eucharist, the transubstantiation. And the patter of a magician probably comes from Paternoster, the repetitive uh, praying of the, of the monks. And, but with, with the notion of a magic trick, you have an object, like a coin. So you have the pledge, you have a coin. Then you have the disappearance of the coin. You, the magician, say, puts it behind a curtain and then pulls the curtain away, and there's no coin there. And then, of course, the third part of the trick is the coin returns, and I pick it from behind my ear. There you go. But it's not the same coin. That's, always, you know, that's the basic thing of a trick. The dove that you get back is not the dove you lost. The coin that you get back is not the coin that you lost. Um, in the same way, for me, the movement of Christianity is very simple. The, the pledge of Christianity is a sacred object. The sacred is an object that will satisfy you. The turn of Christianity is the pulling of the curtain, the realization that the sacred as an object does not exist. And then the prestige of Christianity is the idea that the sacred is a depth dimension in reality itself. So you get the sacred back, but it's no longer an object. It's what is indirectly experienced in engaging in the struggle of love, in the struggle of life. And every time you take communion, you enact the three-part magic trick. The bread and the wine is the sacred object. That's the pledge. The consumption is the turn, the disappearance of the sacred. And then the prestige is when you get up at the end, you know, you're sitting there trying to look holy or whatever, and you get up at the end, and then you talk to your neighbor, and you try to help someone who's struggling. Oh, you heard you lost your job. I know somebody who can help you. Oh, listen, you've just had a kid. Let me bring you some dinner around. And you go like, oh, that's the prestige. The prestige is now the sacred as, the, the, as, as manifested in the struggle of life itself. Any other questions, comments? One here.
I was hoping you could expand just a little bit more on um, your statement that God died a meaningless death. Um, oh. I think that I, I definitely understand that it was described as a terrible okay. death, and I wonder if maybe it's related to what you were just saying about um, seeing nothing there when the curtain is torn, if that's what you mean by it being a meaningless death. Yeah, I mean, there's a great book, by the way, by uh, Hessert, a guy called Hessert, called Christ and the End of Meaning. Quite hard to get hold of, but um, it's a really interesting theological reading of the crucifixion as a type of confrontation with the loss of meaning. So the thing about all atonement theories uh, is there's loads of atonement theories, and the church never decided which one was right. So you've got a variety of them. And for me, uh, I like the conservative ones more because they're more ridiculous. And uh, you know, so, Whereas the liberal ones, they're kind of more persuasive and therefore more dangerous, right? Is that maybe the fact that there's so many uh, atonement theories is precisely because the event kind of ruptures meaning. The event is so hard to, to render meaningful that we find all these different struggles to kind of make it meaningful. But that actually the crucifixion event, and this is what Hessert argues, is kind of like Shoah or the Holocaust within Jewish thought. It is not a meaningful event. It's what ruptures meaning. It's what resists meaning. It's what kind of like a, we can't render ethical. I mean, Kierkegaard talks about this uh, in, many, in many ways for him. Christianity, the two things you shouldn't never say about Jesus, you can say anything you want about Jesus, but two things you should never say or was that he was wise and he was ethical, right? Like those are terrible things to say because in a sense, Christ seems to come in as uh, that which uh, disturbs all our ethical notions of who's in and who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's powerful, who's powerless. And he comes in and actually is foolishness to our wisdom. Um, so and a stumbling block to us. So in, in some respects, I talk about the crucifixion as this event that um, defies meaning. It defies a way to describe it, and that's actually its strength. That, that when you affirm the crucifixion, you are affirming this, this uh, incomprehensible event. And when you wear the cross, it's kind of you're kind of like identifying with this uh, event of rupture. That's the list. But I'd recommend the Christ in the end of meaning. I have a course on it. I'll give you it if you'd email me. and It's very good. Anybody want to come in on that or anything else? We did maybe five more minutes. Adam's not telling me to get down yet. So there's a hand up here. All right. So you described your project in terms of an absurdist religion or theology? Yeah. Okay. And you spoke of Camus. And my question is for... For Camus, he described that place um, of indifference as, as a desert and in some ways. And his option was to rebel. And um, he says in the end, we must consider Sisyphus happy, yeah. things like that. So that that's Camus and, and his interpretation. And I wonder, so is there a transition from that absurd, um, rebellious, response to the indifferent universe? And is there a bridge or uh, a further step in power theology that... To, to add to that or to... to so, so, so if somebody yeah. finds themselves so uh, libidinally divested from the world already, that they find themselves in that desert of absurdity, um, is there, an, I guess, a general approach to rekindling uh, 
sort of a desire to desire. Yeah, well, and so it's the question, I guess, is what? Yeah, what lies at the other side of this? So, if are you saying basically, if you enter into this place of meaninglessness, uh, is there is there a, a way to rekindle meaning on the other side? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, perfect. There's the signal. Very subtly done. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> This is, I mean, this is the difference, like some, some people will kind of say, and I think this is fine to say, I'm gonna say something different, but you know, you, you, you deconstruct for a while and then you can reconstruct. You can, you know, pull things apart and then rebuild. This is saying something more radical. This is kind of saying, no, you go all the way into this place of, 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 of darkness. You go all the way into the profane. Um, and it's only in that radical affirmation that something else arises, a new form of life. And this is what I think, this is what I think Bonhoeffer was trying to talk about with his religionless Christianity, was that he, he basically argued that religion, the religious notion of God was, I used it this morning, this notion of the deus ex machina, which was a, uh, in Greek theater, whenever a bad playwright was writing a story and maybe they killed off a character and they thought, you know what, it'd be great to have that character back. So they would just wheel in a god from the top of the stage who would then magically make the character alive again. They'd wheel god out and the play would continue. And this was seen as a very bad way to write because basically this god was not part of the narrative. This god was just brought into the narrative to fix something. And I think a lot of comic books do this. You know, comic books always like to kill off superheroes for effect. And then they have to think of like stupid ways to bring the superhero back. And do they, have, they make up something that's not really maybe part of the narrative structure or fabric of the comic book, just something they bring in to, to bring Superman back to life again, right? And, and Bonhoeffer saying that is the religious notion of God. You wheel God in as an answer to a problem to help you sleep at night for this or for that, but it's not part of the fabric of existence. And so he, he attacks that. We all, utterly and completely need to let go of that. And then in, in letting go of that completely, something else will arise. And actually, in the last session, I talked about this in relation to Bonhoeffer, or sorry, in relation to Tillich, Paul Tillich, who in, in his book, The Courage to Be, he said that meaninglessness, which is the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, is the way that nothingness makes its impact, right? So there was a time in history when death was the type of nothingness that was most around us. People were dying all the time, and that caused anxiety. Then there was also a time when guilt was how, how nothingness impacted, like Luther, we felt incredibly guilty. But in the 20th century, it's meaninglessness that is the... Uh, the, the malady of the day. And he said the problem is, if you genuinely experience meaninglessness, then no religious belief can fix it. Because by definition, you experience the, the way the idea, the universe is meaningless, so how can you then bring God in to make it meaningful? But what Tillich says then, he says, but if you fully embrace the meaninglessness of existence, you are showing a uh, belief in truth, the idea that you know, that is a more truthful way of thinking about the world. You're showing a courage to embrace that. You're showing a commitment to authenticity. And he says, and those, those, those things, now this is for Tillich, I don't go this way myself too much, but he says, but those very things show a commitment to the ground of being. 
to something we all share. So for Tillich, if there's two people on stage arguing, one for God, the other against God, both of them are affirming truth, the importance of arguments, the importance of searching for rationality, debating and discussing. So he says they're actually on the same side. They're both affirming the God after God. So but in, a, in an analogous way, I'm saying that as you go into this place of utter embrace of the loss of the lost object, you will actually find a way to reconstruct meaning and you'll find meaning in the very act of struggle itself. <laughs>